Hello, and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. This week, I'm talking fixed income during COVID-19 with my guest, Anne Welsh. Anne is a CFA charter holder and chief investment officer for fixed income at Guggenheim Partners. Earlier this year, Barron's named Anne one of the 100 most influential women in U.S. finance. Anne has been in the business for nearly 37 years and is a deep well of knowledge. Our conversation ranges from fallen angels and emerging markets to active versus passive management strategies and why she thinks asset management is a high calling. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Anne Welsh, welcome. Thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. So you've had a really extraordinary career as an investor. You got into the business right out of college and you've been there ever since. So you've obviously seen a lot in the market cycles over the past, what, three decades or so. And I'm wondering, just on a personal level, what over the past sort of six to eight months been like for you as an investor? Well, I have to say this is, of all the cycles I've seen, um, one of the most, if not the most unusual. Um, I guess I like to say the cycles often have uh, elements in common. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think that I've ever experienced a pandemic-driven uh, uh, market cycle such as this. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, illiquidity crises. And we've obviously seen the housing crisis. Uh, I've uh, been in the investment business since uh, the early 80s, and we've seen interest rates. Uh, continually decline over this entire 30 plus years I've been in the industry. I've seen a lot of cycles, but I've never seen anything like this. I have to say this one's unique. Hmm. So you've had a a long and interesting career, and I'm wondering what keeps you going in the field of investing? Uh, Well, a number of uh, critical aspects really uh, keep me uh, engaged. Uh, at a high level. One obviously is uh, this uh, this industry is always changing. Um, and uh, we've seen a lot of market dynamic. We've seen industry change. We've seen, uh, when I got into the industry, uh, very much an institutionally driven business. Uh, it's really shifted towards um, uh, individuals controlling their own wealth. Uh, and uh, and that's been a big, uh, big change. Um, one of the probably the most important aspects of the role I play in the industry is to think of, uh, of my responsibility to investors to ensure that uh, I'm protecting their retirement, their, their nest egg, their uh, children's college savings fund. Um, and so I, sent, I have a, a real sense of obligation uh, with uh, and a sense of responsibility in the investment management uh, business uh, that I take very seriously. And again, that, that also keeps me very motivated uh, to constantly be trying to uh, do the absolute most I can do for our clients uh, in this business. So I've also read that you think of this work as creative work, which is not often a, a word we hear associated with the investment business. And I'm wondering if you could spend just a couple of minutes talking a bit about uh, Guggenheim's investment process. Um, it's very much grounded in behavioral finance principles and the work of Danny Kahneman. Would you just spend a few minutes on that? 
Certainly. Um, and, and one of the reasons that I'm so um, pleased to be part of the Guggenheim team is it's a very team-oriented and collaborative investment management process. Uh, for those of uh, you who may not be familiar with Danny Kahneman, uh, he won the Nobel Prize in economics, even though he's a psychologist. And uh, he won the Nobel Prize for his really groundbreaking work in, in what is today called behavioral finance. And it really has an element of risk management. Uh, and that is how investors uh, perceive risk uh, and reward. And, uh, and I can sort of distill behavioral finance down into a soundbite. And that is basically that investors prefer and embrace uh, avoidance of loss more than they uh, embrace or value what we today call alpha or excess return. And I find this is particularly valuable uh, in fixed income investing, which I can talk about a little bit more as we go forward. But also his work uh, is also groundbreaking in decision theory. And that is how individual investors make decisions. So at Guggenheim, what we've done is we have um, captured all the elements of portfolio management and the entire process of making decisions and, uh, and assembling portfolios. And we've sort of disaggregated all the roles into teams. Uh, and the teams work collaboratively and iteratively together to make decisions uh, that bring the best portfolio ideas. Um, just to kind of uh, describe a little bit about the teams, we have our macroeconomic team, which helps us to, to determine where the future of the markets is, the GDP and macro themes and, and Fed policy, uh, and these days, importantly, also fiscal policy. Uh, and then uh, we also have our sector teams who really focus on individual security selection. And then we further disaggregated the portfolio management process into our risk allocation and risk budgeting team, as well as our portfolio management group, who really assembles the portfolios working together with all of those other groups. In this way, Danny Kahneman would suggest that slowing down the decision-making, not being so reactive to superfluous information that's coming at investors, uh, what I refer to as the cocktail party tip uh, kind of investing, uh, so that we, we, don't, uh, we, we recognize that that doesn't have value. Uh, and then as a result, we're, we're making decisions, as I said, as a team. This is not the same as groupthink, which is really not a positive. And in fed this, instead, this is taking the best and brightest ideas of a group of really smart people working together to create portfolios. So we are going to drill down into fixed income in just a minute. But before uh, we do that, I, as I was sitting here, I read something and I wanted to ask you about it. It was that um, you said that what really made Guggenheim was the financial crisis of 2008. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, how so? Well, so um, it was up until that time, and critically, as I mentioned, the way our teams work together, uh, critically, our macroeconomic view uh, was very much predictive of the financial crisis. While there were very few asset managers who were positioning their portfolios very conservatively, again, going back in uh, to behavioral finance to avoid the risk of loss, uh, our portfolios were uh, positioned in such a way to be very heavily oriented towards government securities, liquid assets, uh, and to be well positioned 
avoiding uh, mortgage-backed securities, particularly non-agency, avoiding and not holding CDO squared. Our history as a firm is one that's rooted in really deep and rigorous credit research as well as structured credit research. And so as a result, we avoided those sectors that we knew were at extreme risk in the coming cycle. Coming out of the uh, financial crisis, we were then very well situated to put risk into our portfolios and to embrace risk at that time to create real value and return opportunities. In that way, our portfolios were able to outperform. I would fast forward to this particular cycle where we had been predicting a financial downturn in 2020. Now, we didn't predict the catalyst would be a pandemic, but nonetheless, we did anticipate that risk was not being rewarded for investors. And so we were very much up in credit quality and once again, very liquid. Once again, we were able to then reposition our portfolios and layer in uh, riskier assets much cheaper, where investors are ultimately getting paid for that risk. Well, it's a good segue because the focus of our conversation today really is sort of navigating the risks to bond markets uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic. So big picture, set the stage for us. Um, what are the key high-level themes that you're focusing on? Well, certainly uh, the uh, Fed intervention is a key element to how fixed income investors are uh, dealing with this market, is watching what the Fed is doing and what activity that they're engaged in. And quite clearly, uh, effective earlier this year, uh, as we saw such volatility in March, the Fed acted uh, in April, in early April, to um, uh, signal strongly to the market that they were very much going to be providing liquidity uh, and um, uh, and they were going to provide stability to the markets. Uh, and they have done so uh, through all sorts of programs, uh, whether it's buying government securities, which had always been in their uh, normal uh, menu of activities, but also extending to buying municipal bonds and um, uh, and, and also short duration corporate bonds. Uh, and this was a significant change for them, and it really stabilized the markets uh, in, uh, in, in that March-April timeline, more specifically in April. Um, but also, they've been very clear in that they're uh, going to do whatever it takes, and I'll put that in air quotes, whatever it takes to uh, keep uh, borrowing costs low uh, and keep markets stable. And so what this means is, is that interest rates are on a downward trajectory still. And now those of us who've been in this business for so many years and literally decades, uh, for us to see uh, interest rates where we are right now, uh, you know, with uh, approximately 50, just around 50 uh, or so basis points on the 10-year Treasury, uh, that's a pretty remarkable uh, level to find ourselves at. Um, at the shorter end of the curve, we're actually seeing negative real rates. It is our anticipation that we would see negative nominal rates uh, in the coming months as well, as the Fed continues its very, um, uh, very much its focus on uh, monetary accommodation. So that's a key theme for us is Fed watching, Fed intervention, and of course, the direction of interest rates. You're also keeping a very close eye on uh, corporate credit, which you believe is very risky at the moment. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, anticipation about a wave of fallen angels? Absolutely. 
Um, coming into 2020, uh, corporate America was already overlevered, uh, and uh, and and coming through the pandemic period uh, that we've been in, and along with the Fed intervention, we've seen uh, literally corporate uh, America gorge itself on, on on even more debt. And in issuers that we would normally have not expected to be able to be repeat borrowers, I'll just you know lay a name out there, for example, like the cruise ship industry, uh, who is obviously struggling tremendously during this particular pandemic. Uh, and they've been able to come to the market to borrow uh, not once, but twice, and maybe coming again in the not too distant future uh, to borrow money. Literally uh, around the globe, there's been $2 trillion of additional corporate debt issued year to date, over a trillion, nearly a trillion and a half of that in the U.S. alone. Uh, that is uh, not without significant risk as corporate America uh, is uh, more levered than ever. Now, to be fair, they've been able to borrow very cheaply thanks to the Fed intervention. Uh, and we see a huge amount of demand globally as uh, global central banks are intervening in other markets, whether it's in Asia or the ECB in Europe, forcing non-U.S. investors to come and participate in the U.S. markets. U.S. investors or, or investors in U.S. debt, and I would say potentially globally, are not getting paid for default risk right now or the risk of fallen angels. So let's spend a bit more uh, time on risk. You're fond of saying, and you just said it, uh, investors have to be paid for risk. Uh, you also say that uh, fixed income investing is about playing the long game. So where are you seeing opportunities today? So um, we can talk about whether investors are getting paid for risk. Uh, for example, right now, on average, approximately, the yield for the high yield market is about a 5.5% level. If you consider that the rate of defaults this year and into early next year is likely to exceed uh, high single digits, maybe into low double digits, you're certainly not getting paid for the default risk. We've seen already a tremendous wave of actual defaults. So triple C rated investor um, uh, purchasers are, are very much uh, unlikely to be getting paid a substantial amount or sufficient compensation for the risk that triple C's ultimately default. Um, I would suggest that single Bs on their way to triple Cs may again also be a further risk. Investment grade issuers who had come into 2020, um, you know, having some level of agreement with uh, the rating agencies to continue to delever have in fact gone the other way. Uh, coming into 2020, uh, a, a substantial percentage of, and I would say somewhere approximately a third of the triple B rated uh, issuers out there actually had fundamentals that were at the non-investment grade leverage level and debt service coverage levels. Certainly borrowing more, this borrowing binge that corporate America has been on is not doing anything to contribute to the reduction of that risk. But investors in a search for yield uh, have accepted this level of risk and are willing to take on a lot more for very little return uh, in order to um, fulfill their need to invest somewhere. And as a result, there aren't that many choices. We're certainly seeing gold and silver prices increase. We're seeing prices of equities increase as investors just look for some place to put their savings dollars. 
And can you spend a few minutes talking about uh, your emerging markets outlook? I know that there are a few hot spots around the world that you have some concerns about. Certainly. Uh, you know, we're very concerned about the impact of coronavirus on, uh, on the emerging markets countries. The supply chain disruption, commodity price volatility, these are important uh, aspects to emerging markets economies. They provide many of the raw materials for the supply chain. Uh, they also depend on the supply chain for uh, goods and services themselves. Uh, emerging markets, if we think about Latin America, uh, uh, Asia have uh, borrowed substantially in U.S. dollars. That means they have to pay back their borrowings in U.S. dollars. Uh, at exactly the time when uh, their economies are suffering quite substantially as a result of coronavirus shutdowns, I point particularly to Brazil as an example of what I'm speaking about. Very integral to the supply chain, very reliant on international trade and very much suffering from uh, coronavirus and its impacts to their economy at this particular time. Um, there are certainly other countries who also uh, are in similar position. Um, now, there could be uh, corporate issuers within these economies that may be benefiting, but overall these sovereign nations and, and overly levered uh, emerging market sovereign nations uh, are at risk potentially of even uh, of either having to have their debt restructured or potentially default. Of course, case in point, Argentina, who's already entered into uh, restructuring at this time. So I know that one of the questions you often get asked is sort of active versus passive uh, investment strategies. And you often say that the, uh, the difference is whether you're talking about sort of the bond market versus the stock market. Can you talk a little bit about um, examples of where active fixed income can really add value? Sure. Well, going back to the uh, discussion that we had about behavioral finance and Danny Kahneman, uh, and in particular how uh, fixed income investors need to think about risk. Um, fixed income investors, by their nature, have a long view. They have to. Bonds are issued for multiple year maturities. Uh, relative to stocks, who you know, whose price activity can be very um, uh, volatile and uh, over a shorter period of time, a lot of equity managers view their markets in a quarter to quarter fashion, from an earnings cycle to an earnings, you know, a reporting cycle to another earnings reporting cycle. Uh, in fixed income, investors are having to take a really long view. Additionally, in fixed income, you have what we refer to as an asymmetric return opportunity. For the most part, if all goes well when you buy a bond, you'll get your return ultimately will be the coupon that you uh, are going to get to clip during the window of time that you hold that bond. Relative to equities, where you can see a substantial increase in value over a period of time, and certainly if you're an equity investor, you hope that that opportunity set exists. But in fixed income, the best that you can hope for if you hold the bond to maturity is just that is just that fixed income return, the actual income that you've earned, and a return of principal at maturity. The big risk is risk of default, and so you have an asymmetric return where you get either we'll say three, four percent in today's world for an investment grade bond, or you could potentially get substantially less return in the case of default. So risk management is a critical aspect of how we think about fixed income relative to equities. Now, let's take that and translate that into passive versus active. As a passive investor, um, you can participate in the 
entirety of a market or subsectors of the market really quite easily, and you get a diverse holding uh, of a slice of the, the market, and, uh, and, and so you can be a passive investor. For the most part, passive structures are cap-weighted, and so you're getting to participate in the largest issuers in a market. Let's convert that into fixed income. In fixed income in an index, the biggest participants or issuers in that passive index are the biggest debtors. That means you're actually taking more risk by investing in an index because you're actually layering in an unknown level of, uh, of debtor risk uh, because you're participating, as I said, the largest debtors. This doesn't make sense. Active fixed income can select the winners, those that will survive and thrive as issuers throughout a long term. Uh, and over the course of time, fixed income investing to me makes a lot more sense because of the risk management element of it relative to, say, an equity uh, passive instrument. So earlier we talked a bit about corporates. Um, we'll do a quick lightning round. Can you give us uh, your views on opportunities you may be seeing in, I'll list out four and we'll sort of go at the time, uh, bank loans? Sure. So in, um, in every market, even though there is, uh, there is certainly risk, uh, there's, as I just mentioned, being an active fixed income manager, you can pick um, individual issues and issuers. Bank loans uh, have a higher level of covenant protection. You can look for those that may be lower levered uh, and ability to make their debt service coverage ratios. You can do your credit research. Um, again, I would avoid a passive allocation to um, bank loans, in other words, through an ETF, and instead select uh, active managers for their ability to pick through the individual issues in bank loans. But I will say uh, that um, uh, that you can get additional yield uh, in bank loans, certainly relative to investment-grade corporate credit. And I would say more broadly, I have a preference for private investing in corporate credit right now because there is some better opportunity for return and yield to be had. Next up, asset-backed securities. So structured credit generally is an out-of-favor asset class. Uh, European investors, because of solvency too, tend to avoid the space. Um, and the Fed, in all of its buying programs, has tended to avoid, absent or except for the AAA tranches of, of structured credit, they've tended to avoid the other issuance there. It's an institutional-only market, so again, an active fixed income manager with specialty skill in structured credit can really unlock some value for investors in this space selectively. But it's an area that we like, and there is opportunity there. Non-agency mortgage-backed securities. So non-agency mortgages today are a different uh, product than they were pre-crisis. Uh, house price appreciation is a solid message as we're starting to see and, and have been seeing tremendous buying activity. Rates are low borrowers are able to make their payments. The household sector is in good shape relative to corporate uh, issuers. And so I uh, feel like there's a lot, we can have a lot of confidence with regard to the payment uh, expectations. 
uh, and we can extract a bit of value in this space. So very, very positive on, uh, on the mortgage sector generally. And the final one for the lightning round, munis. Munis have been uh, a, a terrific uh, sector to be in. Obviously, you have to be careful of a few over-levered uh, issuers and um, uh, in the general obligation space. Uh, we know that the uh, the issuers that are very levered uh, because they happen to be the largest issuers. Again, going back to my point about large issuers usually mean large debtors. So Illinois, New York, New Jersey, California. But even within those markets, there are some really good municipalities, cities, towns, and so forth. Uh, this has been a very good area and expect it will continue to be one. I just want to go back uh, for a moment to where we started out on the key themes. One of the things I, I did want to ask you is about uh, the shape of the recovery. I know there's been a lot of talk of the, the V-shape recovery. That is not a, a view that you subscribe to. Um, tell us why and how you see uh, the, the recovery uh, taking shape. Sure. So to level set, to, in, to my view, a V-shaped recovery was that we returned to January and February economic activity levels within, say, a year. So by January of next year, 2021, we'll be back where we were. Um, we don't subscribe to that, uh, never did, uh, feeling that, that while there was some recovery and we will see some good GDP numbers in the third quarter, it will not get us all the way back there. Uh, our recovery looked more like a, our recovery a projection looks more like a check mark. Um, we'll see some recovery, some call it a Nike swoosh, if you will, where you see some recovery, but then there'll be drag. Uh, the airline industry is going to continue to suffer along with the travel and transportation um, and hospitality industries, and they'll take a lot longer to come back. So our expectation is sort of, sort of a 24 to 36 month recovery to get all the way back to the level that we saw in January and February of this year for particular sectors, and that will affect the overall GDP as well. So for those listeners who are equity investors, I'm wondering, are there some warning signs that uh, equity investors should be paying attention to in the bond markets? Um, so what things tend to flash in the bond markets before the stock market? I think uh, there are some real key um, uh, signals that uh, both markets can gain from each other, equities for fixed income. In particular, if I'm an equity manager, I'm watching the liquidity levels uh, in fixed income. I'm watching fund flows. What we saw in March was a huge move out of fixed income uh, mutual funds, uh, thereby triggering uh, selling of liquid securities like equities. So if you see fund flows move precipitously in any direction, that's a real signal uh, that uh, investors should be concerned about. Uh, additionally, if we start to see spreads widen, uh, that will be a signal to the equity market as well. Again, we may receive the same signal simultaneously from the equity markets that as prices potentially could drop in equities, that would drive spreads in fixed income. So it's very symbiotic. Um, one area to watch out for this year could be the fall. Uh, historically, um, September and October are weak times for volatile market, um, uh, and we could see a sell-off coming into an, uh, the election cycle where investors become quite concerned. We've seen a very substantial move by retail investors this year, more than I can recall ever, uh, into the equity markets, uh, individuals trading. 
And as a result, they can be notoriously fickle. And if we see them move out of equities, again, uh, that will be a trigger signal for uh, uh, you know, equity managers, but it will also impact the fixed income markets. So there's, very, there's a lot of signals that will cross over from each market to the other. So early in our conversation, you talked about the responsibility you feel um, as an investor. And I just want to share with uh, the audience something that you were quoted in Barron's uh, saying, and that is, we think about asset management as protecting the retirement, college savings of other sa or other savings of moms, dads, grandmas, teachers, firemen and policemen. It's a really high calling. So I'm wondering, what advice do you have for uh, younger people who may be interested in investing given all you know uh, from the span of your career and what you know about sort of the current economic cycle and going forward? So for young people who are be considering this as a career or have just entered it, um, you know, it's one of the few areas or, or businesses where you can be, uh, you can be in it for a lifetime. Uh, I am very close to my 37th year in this industry and it has been dynamic and interesting the entire time. Uh, as I said, we've gone through so many changes. Uh, it is, um, uh, and, and it is a high calling. It is extremely important what we do. What I wouldn't want young people to be misled by is the media portrayal of, uh, of the industry as, you know, going back to the movie Wall Street, greed is good. Uh, that kind of theme, that's not how uh, this business should be viewed. Uh, and uh, investors, uh, as I said, we, we're taking care of the savings uh, for our clients and their clients. And this is extremely important work that we're doing, uh, and it's meaningful. And for those who think that there's not a lot of meaning to be had in financial services, I would, I would uh, uh, disagree. I would suggest that there is. And, uh, and for that reason, I've, I've found it to be a very fulfilling career as well. So when we were chatting earlier this week, you quipped that sometimes you have to be a, a Debbie Downer as an investor because your job really is to focus uh, on risk. Um, we're going to end the conversation with what I call the sort of the ray of sunshine. So we're going to flip to the Pollyanna. Um, what has been an unexpected or really positive outcome for you um, as a result of the pandemic? Wow. Uh, so, you know, we found out a lot about our ability to be flexible, uh, both uh, in, within our own company, uh, I know in our own families, in our circles of friends, uh, and of course, uh, you know, uh, nationally and globally, uh, to uh, find new ways to do business uh, and to keep connected. So I think that's been very positive. Uh, additionally, uh, if, I, if I look at the Fed, for example, and talk about uh, their role, they've reacted very quickly. Uh, and so policymakers and, uh, and others that are in uh, important uh, roles of responsibility and decision-making have acted very quickly to keep the market stable and to, again, protect uh, protect investors uh, and savings institutions. So I think there's been a number of good things that have come out. I will add one um, uh, other element is, is that businesses that were already on a trajectory, this has been an accelerant. 
the pandemic has accelerated trends, whether it's the change in retail or, uh, or the adjustments in energy usage, um, movement to renewables, uh, any number of, uh, of, of trends that were already in place seem to have accelerated. And this will be something very interesting to watch in coming months and years. Uh, and, and we see that in, in the stock market as well, where you see winners and losers in the stock market are very much on those companies that have been pandemic uh, winners, if you will, relative to those that are really seeing their business model uh, uh, change as a result of the pandemic. So it's been a real accelerant. I'm just curious, on, on a personal level, did you have to acquire any new habits or did you discover anything new about yourself or life uh, over the last six to eight months as a result of having to lock down or change habits because of the, the, the pandemic? Uh, I think I've become a much better user of technology. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, and I really appreciate uh, the service providers who give haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, Anne, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you to all of you as well. Thank you. Take care. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.